mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This episode contains discussions of eating disorders, so please take care while listening. When I was in elementary school, my parents bought a lake house in the Catskills, this little cabin, and that kitchen was different. Those tables were filled with really rich intellectual discourse because it was my mom's professor friends and my dad's work friends. And I always remember having one ear on like whatever game we were playing, Battleship, Monopoly, sorry, <laughs> um, and one ear in the adult conversation. Welcome to Your Mama's Kitchen, the podcast that explores how we are shaped as adults by the kitchens we grew up in as kids. I'm Michelle Norris. Today, we're joined by the actress Carrie Washington, who starred in series like Little Fires Everywhere and films such as Django Unchained and Confirmation, where she portrayed Anita Hill. You probably know her best from her Peabody Award-winning TV show, Scandal, where she played Olivia Pope, the complicated, sometimes conniving, but always compelling crisis manager who dominated every space she entered. We could spend an eternity talking about Carrie Washington's career in Hollywood as an actor, director, thespian, and activist, but we wanted to know more about her beyond the stage and the way that her family's kitchens have left an imprint on her life. It turns out that Carrie is an enthusiastic cook herself. She loves to prepare big spreads for her friends and family. And in many ways, that's not surprising. She's played some hard-charging characters on stage and on screen, but in real life, she's warm and funny, easygoing and gregarious and very open-hearted. She laughs easily and often laughs at herself. You see a glimpse of that on social media, where she's often queuing up corny dad jokes with her father. Carrie has always projected a family-strong persona, but in a new memoir called Thicker Than Water, she details the struggles that sometimes roiled beneath that perfect veneer. Today, you will hear a candid conversation about Carrie's relationships with her family and with food. We learn how she handled an eating disorder and survived the turbulence of her childhood, how a trip to India changed her life forever, and how a whopper of a lifelong secret upended her sense of self and sent her on a journey of soul-searching and self-discovery. I'm so glad that we're catching you at at an interesting moment, because this is a moment (laughs) of introspection for you in your life in lots of different ways. Um, Your parents are getting older. Your kids are getting older. Your marriage Mm -hmm. has settled into that interesting space where you've been at it for a little bit, right? Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh. And you're doing interesting things in your career. You are an entrepreneur, and you just wrote a book. 
where you yeah. really opened your heart um, and your life in a way that is commendable and also vulnerable. So I'm really, I'm really honored and glad that we caught you at this particular moment. So this is a podcast where we talk about, um, you know, we talk about people's lives. We look back at their life, but it all begins with a really simple question. Mm. Tell me about your mama's kitchen. Mm. (laughs) So my parents lived in the same apartment that my mother lived in with her first husband. That apartment is really such a big part of who she is, who they are, and who I am, because they still live in that apartment part of the year. And what's the name of that um, apartment? um, So it's a Jamie Towers in the Bronx. And um, it was one of the Michelama buildings uh, that was built in New York City for mixed income housing. And that kitchen was... It was not a big kitchen, right? Like we didn't have a big kitchen. It was just like a little hallway of the apartment where you, when you walked in through our front door to the right was the kitchen. And if you kept going straight, you'd get into the rest of the apartment. But if you went to the right, you would walk through the kitchen then to a small dining room table and a a small terrace outside that. And the kitchen was always neat with like, um, strategic clutter. We had a junk drawer that I feel like most people have. In Everybody their has a junk drawer. <laughs> yes, we have a junk drawer in my kitchen. But it was a place where stuff happened. I think the kitchen was a place of pride in my family because we were the first people that I knew of in my neighborhood to have a microwave. And we were one of very few families in the building who had a dishwasher. My dad is a gadget guy. So we always had cool gadgets in the kitchen. And there were always interesting, thought-provoking things on the refrigerator, whether they were, you know, comics cut out of the Sunday funnies that were meant to make you think, or postcards, or posters about museum exhibits, or schedules for schools and rehearsals. There were always snacks in the kitchen and lots of spices and and your 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 parents, Valerie and Earl. Yes. Your mom has Jamaican roots. Yes. And your father is from South Carolina. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and those well, he's he grew up in Brooklyn, mm-hmm. but his people, his folks were from South Carolina. So he has from roots the, the in South Islands. Carolina. Yes. yes. And mm-hmm. the sort of Gullah region. The Geechee, yes. And those are both strong culinary traditions. Yes. Were those both reflected in the kitchen that you grew up in? No. Oh, okay. <laughs> Not the answer I was expecting. <laughs> I mean, I would say in some ways there was there was a lot of tension around those culinary roots. So on my mother's side, the tension was born of the fact that both of my mother's parents were from Jamaica, from St. Elizabeth. They came to this country through Ellis Island and they, um, like a lot of immigrants in the 20s, and their names are both on the wall at the Ellis Island Museum. But when my grandparents came to this country, like a lot of the Italians and the Polish and the Irish, they wanted their kids to be American. And the focus was on being American and assimilation. And so my grandmother did not infuse her seven children with a whole lot of Caribbean culture. They didn't eat Jamaican meals. My mother wasn't raised eating 
Caribbean food or there was Caribbean food around the house, but most of it was for my grandfather and the kids ate kind of American stuff, whatever that was, you know, potatoes and meat and whatever they could get their hands on. And there weren't a lot of specialty markets in the way that there are now in terms of finding plantain and and that kind of stuff. And my grandmother just didn't put a high premium on maintaining those culinary traditions. So my mom has done a lot of work since then trying to learn more Jamaican tradition in the kitchen. But growing up, the meals that she cooked were, again, kind of American, you know, like roast chicken, frozen vegetables warmed up, a lot of pasta, a lot of rice. So rice is big. I think both cultures, mm-hmm. both, you know, in, in the Caribbean and in, um, and obviously in the Carolinas, there's a lot of rice. So I would say rice was a big part of our meal. And then the tension on my dad's side is that my dad did love a lot of what we think of as soul food, but my mother didn't like to cook that stuff. So it turns out like my mother makes great chitlins, but she doesn't like to make them. So he would like yeah, well, beg yeah, her. That, that's, They're smelly. You know, They're you, smelly. You really, you have to commit. <laughs> yeah. You just have and to it's, commit it's if you're going to make chitlins. Right. So like pig's feet and chitlin and cow's tongue, you know, there was a lot of humor in my family around like, you know, my, I remember my mom saying like, you know, Earl, we can eat the other parts of the cow now. Like we, we're, you know, we free now. So we can, we can eat things other than the intestines and the tongue and the feet. Like there are other parts of these animals available to us, but he was really, um, he loved that, that Southern tradition of how we made culinary art out of the parts that were tossed away. But again, I was not encouraged to eat those foods. So it was kind of like everybody had their own food agenda. Even though we were a small family of three, there wasn't a ton of rich culinary tradition. What was dinner time like in your family? Your, your mom worked, dad worked. Yeah. You were busy. You were one of those kids who raised your hand to join every club possible. So <laughs> when you all sat down to dinner, what was a, a typical Washington family meal like? So a lot of meals we didn't have together because I had two working parents. My mom used to wake up early in the morning before I got up for school. So 6 a.m., a lot of times when I would wake up to start getting ready for school, she was cooking dinner for me. And she would cook dinner and put it in one of those beautiful, like those Pyrex dishes with the flowers on the side. Oh, yeah, cor- corningware. The corningware, yes. So she would put the, the the roast chicken in one side and the the vegetables and the rice on the other side, and she would cover it with saran wrap and put it in the fridge with a little post-it note that said, you know, warm up for two minutes on medium heat, love you. A lot of my meals were on my own at home or with the cousins that I was sort of, we all were latchkey kids together during some periods and some periods I was on my own. So we didn't have a lot of meals together. When we did have meals together... My dad is a big lima bean fan. Um, So I remember having a lot of those, like the frozen mixed vegetables that were like corn and carrots and lima beans and peas, but they would be like zhuzhed up by my mom with all kinds of spices that she had. Yes, yes. I don't even think I knew that that's what it was called, but it was just like her little riff turning that frozen bag of goodness into something really special. During the summers in Carrie's childhood, her family would escape to upstate New York, where she experienced a different kind of kitchen. 
The tight little kitchen in New York City was usually disoccupied by Carrie and her parents, but at the lake house, the kitchen was filled with friends and relatives and her parents' colleagues. It was a place where she was nourished by conversation as much as food. Now, when I was in elementary school, my parents bought a lake house in the Catskills, this little cabin on a lake in upstate New York. And that kitchen was different. Um, It was similar in shape, except that it was a little hallway and it had a table at the end where we kept all the desserts and things. But that kitchen, that house was a place where we had meals together. And often not just us, but extended family, cousins, friends that came up for the week or for the weekend, you know, for the week during the summer or the weekend during the school year. And that table was very different. That table was a table where there was no TV. There was no TV at all upstate New York. Sometimes the radio, we'd listen to something on the radio like the old days, but mostly we just talked and, and around those tables. And sometimes our tables in the city, if my parents were having a dinner party, but those tables were filled with really rich intellectual discourse because it was my mom's professor friends and my dad's work friends. And I always remember having one ear on like whatever game we were playing, Battleship, Monopoly, sorry, (laughs) Um, and one ear in the adult conversation. Like I think about that kitchen and, and that dinner table a lot when I think when people ask me my interest in politics, it, it stemmed from me kind of overhearing those really rich conversations mm. in the late 80s and early 90s around academia and racism and sexism and identity and socioeconomics and all this stuff, you know, the the AIDS epidemic, like all the stuff that was going on in the world. I could hear the grownups talking and about art and literature and film. And that kitchen may have been the more impactful kitchen in my life. We understand our parents' marriages in a different way when we look over our shoulder over decades. And often when we become partners ourselves in committed relationships, you just sort of understand the tensions and the the speed bumps and, you know, all, all all the stuff that they go through. Yeah, yeah. And you, you describe a period, an extended period, and it's, you know, it's a, it's a longer chapter where there were a lot of tensions between your parents. And I was surprised to read it because I've, I've met your parents, Valerie yeah. and Earl, and, um, yeah. and you know, you, you wouldn't know any of this, but there was this long period where your dad would get home late. Um, you, could, you said that your mom sometimes would be doing your hair and you could sense her jaw getting tight when she'd hear the keys and when he'd walk in the room and and you were supposed to be sleeping, but you were hearing uh, an extended conversation. It sounded like that conversation was often in the kitchen. Yeah. And they were battling it out, a period where they had different expectations of what they thought marriage was going to be. That must have been tremendously difficult for you to go back to that period that you'd probably locked away somewhere. And revisit that and then share it with the world. It's interesting because even as I'm talking to, I have the impulse to do that, you know, comparative trauma thing where I'm like, well, it wasn't as hard as a lot of people, right? Like I know how lucky I was. I had two parents who were married, which was really unique in my community, in my neighborhood, 
They were committed to each other. They were committed to me. I knew how wanted I was. I didn't even know how truly wanted I was, but I I felt wanted. Um, I felt loved. So I understand how lucky I was. I I, I want to say that first, right? Um, that being the reality, it was scary to to be navigating the volatile nights that were happening when they thought that I was asleep and to try to grapple with cultivating a sense of safety when it seemed that there was so much upheaval. And they wanted to keep it from me. You know, they wanted, like so many things in my childhood, they really wanted to protect me from it. And I think in some way that that effort of secrecy of of all of us pretending that things were fine, in some ways doubled down on the pain of it because I felt that much more alone and like I couldn't talk about it. There was more, there was like shame around it. You write in the book that you were all actors. Someone asked if you were the first actor in your family and you said, well, the first one who gets compensated for it. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and and I laughed at that, but I didn't know how deep that answer really was because you said that you were all a family of performers. You said your mom and dad were 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 the musicians and you were the assistant. I was. I, I felt like I was serving their performance. I knew that they had an act that they were presenting to our community, to our family. I didn't always know exactly how deep that act was or the secret that was um, being kept from me and from others. But I knew, I knew that there was a performance. I knew that we had to be something other than what we just were, something more, something better, something more um, more perfect. And so I was always leaning into how to support their performance and kind of figure out how to join in their dance so that I wouldn't disappoint them, so that I wouldn't disappoint our audience. And I feel really, really lucky that, um, that despite how... Um, debilitating that was in the sort of evolution of me understanding myself as a person, as Carrie Washington, like I was able to cultivate these skills that led me to a lifetime of performance, right? That I was able to find a career where I could take this survival skill and put it to practice in ways that have really benefited me and transformed my life and allowed me to experience endless blessings and opportunity and privilege. And thank God I have found an appropriate place to utilize those skills because for most of my life, um, and still sometimes today, you know, that I still struggle with it and there's remnants of that. But for most of my life, I thought that life itself had to be a performance, you know, and Shakespeare said it, right? All mm-hmm. the world's a stage. So this must be how we're all supposed to live. We're not supposed to be authentic. We're not supposed to be true. We're not supposed to be interdependent and vulnerable. We're supposed to be perfect and performed and self-sufficient and um, self-reliant and alone in a way, Mm. right? Like alone in our realness because no one should see it. You said something there I got to follow up on. It's interesting. You said you didn't want to let the audience down. Who was the Mm -hmm. audience? Anybody. You know, the audience growing up was 
our family or the people at the dinner party or the neighbors or the folks around the lake or the teachers, the other students at school. It was anybody who was looking at this family, the Washingtons, and perceiving us as this perfect triad of, you know, middle class mobility and success. And, um, you know, we were smart. We were pretty. We were, we had two cars and a microwave and a dishwasher and a cabin in upstate New York. And um, we had good jobs and they were still married. And I was, you know, we were that. We were, there was a lot of performance at play and a lot of it was real. You know, my mother was a brilliant professor and my dad did have great suits and, and I was not a dumb kid. You know, I was like, we, there, and there was a lot of laughter and there was a tremendous amount of love, but there was also this sense that we had to be on. Were your parents doing that for someone else or were they doing it for themselves? Because that was the, that was the narrative that they committed to. And they were going to present no matter what. I think both. I I, want to talk about the book without giving away too much to the listener, but there was basically, you know, a lie about, you know, how our family came to be and maintaining that lie in itself, I think, set up the dynamic that we had to maintain appearances. A protective, some a protective it, yeah, fallacy. I think so. But some of it's cultural too. Don't you think, right? Like there's a dynamic for us in the black community of like, you don't air your dirty laundry, mm-hmm. right? We don't tell our secrets. No, um, no. cause success and, was denied us. So we had to, we had to that's right. serve it when we could to our own community. Serve it that's up when right. we could. That's right. Um, and I think they also... I think there was a performance for me. You know, they didn't want me to ever think that something might be amiss, right? So there was a constant performance. I think um, as my dad struggled with professional success, he didn't ever want anybody to know that. So my mother and I participated in that dance of, you know, whatever it took to keep up the appearances of his success. There was, there just was always the sense that we had to... That, that there was an appropriate mask in in a, an appropriate room. And I think about that now. I think, you know, I apply that now when it comes to fashion and my red carpet dressing. You know, like when I'm picking a look for the red carpet, I'm like, well, what is the event? Is it, I think about that. I think I I, I know a lot about how to meet the moment of being appropriate for a given event or circumstance. And, and I think that comes from the hypervigilance of growing up in a family where we were, performing for ourselves, for each other, and for our community. If the kitchen was a place where the emotions boiled over, was the kitchen a place of comfort in that sense? Because even though it got a little bit ugly and maybe a little bit loud, at least it was real. I found comfort in the food itself because the food that was there when I was alone was like having some bit of my mother that I could have access to. Mm. And so when I came home and I was by myself, if I felt alone or scared, there came to be this ritual of eating the food to feel loved and feel less alone and numb some of the discomfort of the loneliness. You know, every time I pulled out one of those dishes from my mother, it had a little love note on it. 
And so to engage with the food felt like even though she wasn't home, those pork chops were, right? And so I started to go to the food and additional food and kind of binging and using food, more food than I need as comfort, just to to fill those spaces. It was like a God-sized hole or a mommy-sized hole that I thought if I if I stuff enough snacks in there, maybe I won't feel the feelings. You know, that behavior early on, kind of being alone in the apartment and looking for comfort, seeking comfort in the snacks, that it became a coping mechanism that I used a lot. And as a you know, a high functioning perfectionistic kid, drug addiction and alcoholism were not options, right? There was no way to stay on the dean's list and maintain the scholarship and be the lead in the play if you're high all the time. Or and so um so food became the thing that I could use and remain high functioning, that I could hide. I would like stop at the bagel store on the way to school and buy two bagels um, covered in butter and sugar and, um, and eat one on the way and then arrive at school and pretend I hadn't eaten and have another one. And, you know, it wasn't it started out in sort of small ways. And by the way, like if you're hungry for two bagels, that's great. That's a wonderful thing to do um, to listen to your body. But I I wasn't listening to my body. I was self-medicating, playing with food and with the manipulation of my body, just trying to manage my emotions through food through sort of abusing food and abusing my body, honestly. How, I'm not going to ask you how you got over the mountain because I don't know that you get on the other side of that, but how did you cope with food in a different way? How did you learn how to make peace and to fill that hole in a different way? Well, that was the beginning for me, you know, in college when I really hit my bottom with the food and body behavior, with the body dysmorphia and the the abuse with food and the abuse with exercise and starvation. And um, that was when I really found two important things. It's when I first found a personal relationship with God. Like that's the first thing that got me on my knees in life to be like, (laughs) help, right? Like the first time I really asked God for some help was around that, which was really transformative for me. And it began my kind of spiritual exploration and spiritual practice. And it's also the first time that I got mental health support. It was when I first went into therapy and group therapy situations and um, really started to think about the health of my mind Hmm. and, and how to change the channel in my unhealthy thinking. Is this when you went to India? Yeah, so right after college. That, that was a surprise for me. I didn't know that there was an India chapter for Carrie Washington. <laughs> yes. It's one of the favorite chapters of my life and of the book. <laughs> yeah, I really, I loved my time in India. It's really, and I, I you know. And, and you went to India to study yoga. I did. I went to study yoga and traditional Indian performing arts. How long did you stay and how did it transform you? And were you able to become 
the success. A lot of questions here. How, how long did you stay? How did it transform you? And, and were you able to create a successful career as an actor in Hollywood in part because of the serenity and the strength that you found in India? I went as part of a postgraduate program, um, a program that was run through um, the University of Wisconsin at Madison. And they have this tremendous program where every summer they, I don't know if it still happens, but there was a group of students and we all lived in this house. It was like the real world Kerala. We all lived in this house, um, American students all studying different art forms. Some of us were studying instruments. Um, some, of, some of us were studying traditional Indian dance, Bharatanatyam. And I was studying um, Kalari Payat, which is a, a martial art, and also Katakali, which is traditional Indian theater. But I was taught that in order to study any movement art, I had to first understand yoga, that yoga was the beginning of all Indian movement art forms. And so I spent a lot of time studying yoga there and actually got certified to teach, which was one of my many hustles as a starving artist in New York City when I got back. And the program was, I think, three months. And then I spent several months after that traveling around South India, for the most part by myself, some of it with one of the other students in the program, Beth, and then um, some of it on my own. It was a very, very rich experience for me. And in a lot of ways, that's why I wanted to do it because I had the sense about halfway through college that I was going to come back to New York because I went to college in DC at GW, that I was going to come back to New York and I was going to hit the ground running and I was going to do whatever it took to have a career as an artist. I wanted to make sure that I could root myself in a place where performance art was about more than like trying to book a commercial to sell hamburgers, right? Like I wanted to go somewhere that wasn't just the business of show business, but where performance was rooted in culture and tradition and history. It was a very transformative experience for me. We'll learn more about the kitchen that Carrie has created now for her family coming up after this break. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. 
You're listening to the Audible Original, Your Mama's Kitchen. Like what you're hearing? Listen to more from Carrie Washington between episodes by visiting audible.com slash Carrie. Sign up for a free Audible trial and get Carrie Washington's new memoir, Thicker Than Water, read by the author. For now, enjoy Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. I love to be able to cook in a kitchen and have a good meal with the people I care about all around me. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen at a big island and we were able to all get in and do our thing together and sit down in the adjoining dining room and have a long, loud meal and then clean up afterwards and continue the conversation. I loved being able to do that and Airbnb allowed that to happen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. Hosting your home on Airbnb is a great way to make some extra money. It's very practical as a side hustle. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. What have you done to create the kitchen that fills the right kind of holes for your mm. little people right mm-hmm. now mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in the kitchen that you and Namdi have created together? The pandemic was a devastating time for a lot of us for a lot of reasons. But one of the things that I found was a reconnection with cooking. For me, I, you know, I have been a working mom my whole life as a mother. And I haven't spent as much, I hadn't spent as much time in, in the kitchen as as I could have maybe, or I just, no, that's not fair. I shouldn't say that. I just hadn't, ha- I didn't have as much time to spend in the kitchen during the years when I was, you know, working as the number one on a network drama, which, you know, that's when I became a mom was in, in those circumstances. Both and times, so, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, my, you know, my third, my oldest was already, you know, a kid when that show started, but COVID allowed me time to out of necessity, rediscover my kitchen. And we joke about it. It was like kind of in the beginning of COVID when nobody was going to the grocery store, you know, and everybody was terrified to leave the house, period. And we started getting one of those boxes that, that we would sort of pay a a farm that was about an hour and a half outside of LA to ship us this box of whatever produce was available from the farm. My parents would actually drive the hour and a half to the farm and get two boxes and bring them back. And, um, And they would come back with these boxes full of vegetables that half the time I was like, I don't even know what this is. Like I have no idea what this thing is. Like why do they always give you root the leaves or something like some something you've never heard of. Crazy. (laughs) And so I started doing these deep dives on the internet, you know, on all the cooking websites. And suddenly we were making kale chips. And I was like, you know, you can do stuff with carrot greens. You don't have to throw the carrot greens away. I was making like a pesto. I was doing a carrot green pesto. And and I started to just like have more time in the kitchen, spend more time in the kitchen. And I love to cook. 
I did some cooking early on and, you know, as, as I was learning to take better care of myself early on in my food recovery, um, I started to cook. And then as I got busier, I didn't cook as much. When I first met Namdi, I cooked because, you know, I, I, I knew I wanted to, I wanted him to think that I could cook maybe. <laughs> <laughs> so I was doing some cooking early on in our relationship before before I got really busy um, as an actor when I had a little more free time, um, windows of freedom as an actor. But this period in COVID, it really, my love for cooking kind of exploded and I love it. You know, recently my kids gave me one of those books for my birthday of like all the things they love about me, you know, where you should like fill in different Aww. pages with different answers. And I couldn't believe how much of it was about cooking. Really? How much of it was about, you know, the there's a recipe for chicken that I make that's an Easter chicken, really just because it's a recipe that I made one year on Easter that they were like, we're calling this Easter chicken. Or there's a tangy chicken that they like, or my short ribs, I make like a 10 hour short rib recipe. And, um, um, or the cheesy pasta, like whatever it is, the cornbread, like they're very, you know, that is now a big part of how I parent, but it wasn't. I mean, it, before before the pandemic, it was not. So I'm, that is one of those things that I'm really grateful for discovering or rediscovering or expanding and growing. So when you wrote about your parents and the difficulties yeah. of their lives, Earl and Valerie are still together. They are. And you and your dad are cracking corny jokes on social media all the time. <laughs> um, I adore him. Mm -hmm. And is there a, a, a message in that about getting to the other side, about just hanging yes. in there? Even, you know, Michelle Obama talks about this. She yes. says that if you've been married for 20 years or more, there probably was a good six, seven, eight, maybe 10 years where you, you know, maybe didn't like that person that much. Uh-huh. Uh, but sometimes you just, you know, you, you stick with it. You hang in there and there are dividends when you do. Is that one of the reasons you could tell this story is because your parents seem to be reaping those dividends, seem to have found something special having climbed up the rough side of the mountain together? That lesson is there about them as a couple and it's also there about us as a family. Like I think that when you read the book, you really see how they have struggled, but you witness how together they are, how they've chosen each other and you see them on my social media. And we just did a photo shoot, all three of us for People Magazine for the book. And it, I just was like, so just pouring over with love because the reality is that in the telling of this truth that they were kind of forced to tell me against their will to reveal to me the the way that our family came to be. But in doing that, we have grown so much closer as a family that that truth has allowed us to drop those masks and to drop those shields and the arm length that that we had from each other because we were maintaining these facades and these secrets and these performances, right? Like there's no more performance in my mm. family with us. I was going to ask you that. Real. I mean, now if we are performing, we really are like joyously entertaining others in our truth, but we're not 
needing to pretend to be somebody other than who we are. And that is just in the last five years, you know, and not even all of those five years. Like when the revelation happened five years ago, we went through family therapy. We did a lot. We did counseling. We've done real heart to heart. We've we've done the work to move toward each other and be in this kind of radical acceptance. And so I guess there is, you know, for me, it's like when you see those dad jokes, it means so much to me that now when you see my dad and I salsa dancing on the internet or <laughs> telling dad I did jokes see that. or, you know, whatever it is that we're doing or see us in People Magazine together, that that's not easy. That stuff is not easy. Family is not always easy, but it's worth it. And I believe that phrase, we are as sick as our secrets. I think that, I think there's some truth to that. And so I feel like our family is healthier than we've ever been because they're not keeping a secret from me and I'm keeping fewer secrets from them because the the culture of our family is no longer a culture of, of secrets. And what a gift to the next generation to now see, yeah. you know, this happy, cohesive family living in their truth. Yeah, their truth. Though your mother didn't do a lot of cooking in front of you, there were times where you were in the kitchen all together, and that's often for holidays. And the recipe that you wanted to share with our listeners, because we always leave our listeners with a recipe (laughs) um, that is cherished by someone that they know and love. And so what is the recipe that Kerry Washington is sharing with our listeners? So I'm sharing a Jamaican black cake recipe. Mm. And mm, it that is, sounds good. It is basically a fruit cake, but I don't call it fruit cake because people don't like fruit cake. No, and don't this the, is not, fruit fruit cake needs it. When you say fruit that, cake, yeah. people this the door closes. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> and exactly. Locks, right. No, my dad calls it fruit cake because he always will say to somebody, "Do you want some of my wife's fruit cake?" And they say no, and then he says, "Great, I'll keep it for myself." But we, <laughs> but, but dad we joke. call it. Yes, exactly. <laughs> we call it either black cake or rum cake. So this is like a very moist, dark, rich baked treat that is filled with fruit that has been soaking in rum for months. My mother used to collect this fruit for months and months and keep it in a giant jar in our kitchen where she would pour in this Jamaican rum. And then you blend up the fruits. It's a slow cook at a low temperature. You put a a pan of water in the oven so that it stays moist and um, Wait, when you bake it, you, you put a when second you bake pan it, mm-hmm, to hold on to that moisture. Cake, yes, so that the moisture stays in. Um, it's it's just delectable. I mean, I think as a kid, we probably got drunk on it because it's also like after you bake it with the rum, then you pour the rum into it. I mean, you just, it's so rich. I'm getting it's, woozy just listening it's to amazing. this. It's amazing. It's amazing. So this yes. big jar with all the fruit. Is it all kinds mm-hmm. of fruit? Is it, you know, yes, winter fruit? Because it sounds raisins, like dark raisins, light raisins, apricots. Um, so summer prunes. fruit too, peach fruit. Yes, I mean, um, yes. stone fruit from the summer. Yes, yes. And dry, it's dried, mostly dried fruits. So okay. it's the dried fruits that, that will soak up the moisture. And do you do it in, in sort of a dense, large, round cake pan or do you do these as indiv- cuz I've seen black cake in little individual little pots also we do them in loaves okay um generally in loaf pans yeah mm-hmm. sometimes she'll do one round one 
if it's a to have at the sort of Christmas dinner or um, at my wedding, I think we had a round bunt kind of a situation, but mostly it's in loaves. Okay, and the and the rum that you put over the top of that is that like so a you glaze? bake it with rum, mm-hmm. but then you also just pour the rum into it when it comes out of the oven. What people would do is as as the cake was getting older, because the rum evaporates, if you want to freshen up your rum cake, you can just pour some more rum in, right? And then, take, you keep it and then you take a very good nap after that. Yes, exactly. You have it with your eggnog and your rum cake and you're good for the night. Kerry Washington, I have loved talking to you. Thank you. Thanks for being with us. We have to cook together one day. Yes. So let's make that happen. Okay, I love that. And your children, in that book they gave you, I think they may have been saying, Mommy, it's time for you to do a cookbook because it sounds like you really threw down, Ah! Don Quivid. You know, with the Easter chicken and the tangy chicken and, you know, the short ribs that take 10 hours. I mean, I'm I'm Mm -hmm. seeing the next book might be a cookbook. So Okay, I like that idea. (laughs) Love you. Thank you. you. Thanks so much for being with us. I really love talking to Carrie Washington. It's rare to find someone who is so consistently jovial despite the many hardships that life has thrown at them. Even rarer to find someone like Carrie that does the work to better themselves with so much unbridled joy. In fact, joy is the word that comes to mind when I think about Carrie Washington because the way she presents in the world. Commitment is the other word, and our conversation confirmed that. I've always known that she is dedicated to her craft as an actor and to using her voice as an activist. But in this conversation and in her book, I also learned that she's committed to her relationships over the long haul, even when things get tough, and perhaps especially when things get tough. It's kind of like that Jamaican black cake. Some things just take time. You can find Kerry Washington's family recipe for their Jamaican don't call it a fruitcake black cake on my Instagram page. And if you try it in your own kitchen, you might want to go easy on the rum. It's a delight. Thanks for listening. Come back next time. This has been a Higher Ground and Audible original produced by Higher Ground Studios. Senior producer Natalie Wren, producer Sonia Tun, and associate producer Angel Carrera. Sound design and engineering from Andrew Epen and Roy Baum. Higher Ground Audio's editorial assistants are Jenna Levin and Camilla Thurdicus. Executive producers for Higher Ground are Nick White, Mukta Mohan, and Dan Fearman, and me, Michelle Norris. Executive producers for Audible are Zola Mashariki, Nick D'Angelo, and Ann Hepperman. The show's closing song is 504 by The Soul Rebels. Editorial and web support from Melissa Baer and Say What Media, talent booker Angela Peluso. Special thanks this week to Clean Cuts in Washington, D.C. Head of Audible Studios, Zola Mashariki, Chief Content Officer, Rachel Giazza. Copyright 2023 by Higher Ground Audio, LLC. Sound recording copyright 2023 by Higher Ground Audio, LLC. That's it for this week. Be bountiful and make sure and come back next time.
deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.